So today's reading is uh, Revelation chapter 19, that's right at the back. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead come gather for the great supper of god to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains the flesh of mighty men the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men both free and slave both small and great and i saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army and the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the, done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worship its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Heavenly Father, we pray so much that you'll help us to see why we have every reason to give you praise, uh, to call out hallelujah, uh, even in the midst of all of the tragedy and pain uh, that this world and that we are going through at the moment. 
Um, please help us as we sit on your word today in Revelation, that you will help us to be able to hear you speak so clearly to us. Help us to really see um, uh, reasons why we can praise you, especially that we might have a great vision and understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ. For this we pray in his name. Amen. Now, wouldn't it be great, right, if we had more reasons to rejoice and to celebrate? Uh, these are hard to find these days, isn't it? I know yesterday there was a, a, a wedding, and I think quite a few of you went there, and it was a great chance to celebrate and to rejoice. Uh, but if you think about the last week, uh, things have been pretty grim, haven't they? Uh, as if uh, COVID over the last two years hasn't been enough. Uh, you know, uh, Russia decides to go to war with Ukraine just a few weeks ago, uh, and then Brisbane got hit by a flood that they said in 2011 would be one in 100 years, but then 11 years later, hello, here we are again, right? And if we look around, if you drove here today, maybe you saw all of the carnage uh, that's been left behind. Uh, it's been hard, isn't it, to find reasons to celebrate and to rejoice. And for us, uh, we, uh, our street has been quite badly impacted by the floods. Uh, our house itself has been safe. We are a bit higher on the street. Uh, but we did lose power for a few days, and that it caused us some trouble. Uh, but the power came back on Wednesday night, probably three or four days earlier than we expected. In 2011, we lost power for about a week and a half. But this time, it was only three or four days. And, and when the power came on, uh, spontaneously, me and my dad uh, shouted, hallelujah, right? Uh, my, my parents live at the back uh, in, in their granny flat. And we were just saying, hallelujah. One, one reason to give God praise and thanks in the midst of all this kind of downer that has been life in the past few weeks, months, and years. And to be honest, I really needed that. Um, I had come back last week from a conference being quite fired up and very excited about being able to move on with a new year with lots of different plans personally and for the church. Uh, but then, you know, with uh, things happening over the weekend, uh, I really needed that reason right, to, to praise God and to be able to find and feel joy. Now, for the past couple of chapters in Revelation, as we've been, uh, we began again in Revelation 17 three weeks ago, and indeed, if you were to go back to the beginning of the book of Revelation, it has been showing us kind of what we already know about life, uh, especially as believers. By believers, we live in grim times. Uh, it was definitely true for the first Christians back in the first century under the Roman Empire and the rule of Rome and the pressures of Rome. It's been true down through the centuries as we live in a broken world, as we face the opposition that Christians face and the difficulties of being followers of Jesus. And it continues to be true today. Now, if we can uh, give a bit of background before we get into chapter 19, because there are a lot of strange details in 19 that we need some background to understand, right? So back in chapter 12 and 13 of Revelation, we were given a vision uh, of uh, a dragon and a two beasts, right? Uh, chapter 12 and 13, in a way, gives us a picture uh, of the spiritual forces that are at war against Christians. Uh, the dragon is um, the picture of the devil. If you go back and read chapter 12, uh, Satan, the great deceiver, uh, who is uh, seeking to destroy God's people. Uh, the dragon is going to war against Christ and all those who belong to him. So you can go back and reach up to 12 if you want. And then the dragon calls out from the sea the first of two beasts. Uh, we met this in chapter 13. Uh, this first sea beast symbolizes the use of military and political power and forces right, to draw the worship of the world to the dragon, right, to Satan, the devil. Uh, and then uh, the second half of chapter 13, we met the earth beast, who uses false teaching. So the, the, the earth beast is also known as the false prophet. Uh, and uh, it uses uh, false teachings, false religion, right, to draw worship to their first beast and to the dragon. Now, why am I bringing this up again? Because we're going to meet these three characters 
uh, in this chapter and in the chapter to come. And we're going to see their end, their extermination, right? God will deal with them in the final judgment. Now, fast forward to chapter 17, then, which we looked at two weeks ago. The first of these two beasts, the military political power guy, he comes back on the scene. And this time, riding on the first beast, uh, now dressed in red, as in scarlet, is the great prostitute. Uh, we met the great prostitute riding the beast back in chapter 17, and she's the representation of the great city of Babylon. Uh, and we saw that the great prostitute, uh, Babylon the Great, uh, as a symbol, right, representing the lure uh, of God-denying, uh, self-glorifying, self-sufficient, self-indulging uh, kind of world, right? It's the forces of evil to, to promote that kind of self-glory, self-sufficiency, uh, self-indulgence, uh, right, that pushes against and away from God. And we see that the great prostitute riding on the beast, like their allies, but by the end of chapter 17, we see that the beast actually turns on the great prostitute, uh, we heard two weeks ago that evil has a way of destroying itself, doesn't it? It will turn against itself. And all of this is under the judgment hand of God, right? It isn't just sort of a natural consequence. It's God's judgment that the beast turns against the great prostitute. Now, but before God's judgment does fall, uh, believers are under great pressure. Right? That's what we've been hearing in, in Revelation. Under the uh, great pressure of Babylon, to conform to her sinful and God-rejecting ways, uh, but also to pay the price if we don't conform, if we stand firm in our faith in Jesus, if we choose to love Jesus and not love the world, not love the prostitute, great Babylon, uh, we will suffer for it. We will face uh, rejection, uh, opposition, uh, perhaps even violence and death. Now, last week in chapter 18, we were given an insight into Babylon's future certain downfall, right? John was given um, words uh, that, that shows that Babylon had fallen, right, as if a past event. Uh, we also heard Babylon's lovers. They are weeping and wailing as they see the love of their life, right? Their soul's desires all go down with Babylon's fall. But we also saw the great fear that gripped them as they saw the judgment of Babylon, knowing that their impending judgment was about to happen as well. But in the midst of all that weeping and wailing and fear of Babylon's lovers and Babylon's fall, we had one verse, right, that spoke to believers. So in chapter 18, verse 20, we were told, uh, the voice from heaven told, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Right? So one verse to the believers to rejoice. Right? So the heavens and to the believers to rejoice. Now, chapter 19 expands on this verse. Right, it's like a scene change to give us a different perspective of, in a way, the same event. In chapter 18 was the perspective of earth, right? seeing the great city of Babylon fallen and seeing the lovers of Babylon uh, in their mournful lament. And the purpose of chapter 18 was to call us out of Babylon, right? To avoid her ways and to avoid going down with her in judgment. That was last week, chapter 18. Now, chapter 19 gives us the perspective of heaven, right? In verses 1 to 10, do you notice, it's the voices that come from heaven crying out, right, in praise of God's judgment against Babylon and crying out in praise of the blessing of being married to the Lamb. And then in the second half of the chapter, verses 11 to 21, we see that voices changes to visions, right? Vision of heaven opening to reveal to us the all-conquering Christ, all-conquering Christ. 
And so we see that this week, the purpose of, of, of chapter 19 is to call us to join in the praise of heaven and to accept the invitation to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb and the call to worship and trust Jesus, the King who conquers and condemns all who oppose Him. So that's what this week's about, okay? So have a look at verse 1 to 4 to start with. Uh, we, the chapter begins by drawing us to the cries, the voices that come out from heaven, right? Loud voices of the great multitudes in heaven crying out, right? Verse 1 to 4. Now, we know back in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, that this great multitude are the believers who are triumphant, right? Who have held firm to their faith in Jesus and who have died, right? And they're now there with Jesus and the Lord Jesus. And this great multitude in heaven is crying out, right? Hallelujah! Hallelujah, which literally means praise Yahweh, right? Hallelujah is praise. Yah is short for Yahweh. Praise the Lord God. Now, praise the Lord God for what? what? For what reason is heaven crying out, praise the Lord God? Well, it tells us, because salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Salvation, glory, and power that is seen in and seen through, right, the true and just judgment of the great prostitute. Now, I'm not going to go into this too much today about the judgment on the great prostitute. That was last week, right? Chapter 18. You know, why did Babylon have to be judged? What did they do that was so bad that made them get judged in this way? Last week, right? Last week's sermon, last week's passage. Uh, go and listen, go and read if you weren't here. But looking briefly at what is said in chapter 19, we're reminded as to why Babylon is judged. It's because she has corrupted the world uh, with her sins and because she has done violence to believers who will not be enticed by her. And so we're told that God is to be praised because of salvation, glory, and power, right? That, that believers have been saved from Babylon's corruption, and believers will be saved from Babylon's violence. And God's glory is to be praised. His, her glory, his glory is to be praised because the, the glory-robbing prostitute, the soft, glorious one, she is going to be pushed down. She's going to be judged for stealing God's glory, and His glory will be seen and praised. She will be seen to be the counterfeit, right, the pretender. God's power will also be seen and praised as He brings down right, the great prostitute, the great Babylon, for the things that are so-called great in this world are nothing compared to the greatness, the, the power of God. Power that is used to corrupt and hurt will be powerfully brought down and judged right, by the all-powerful God. And so the multitudes, they cry hallelujah. And because one cry of hallelujah isn't enough, in verse 3 we're told that they say it one more time. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? That the details there, <clears throat> that they repeat themselves again. Hallelujah. One time isn't enough. Now, we don't hear of heaven's inner circle joining in on this praise. And so we, we meet uh, um, uh, the 24 elders and the four living creatures. And if you've been reading along in Revelation, you know that they appear in Revelation 4. The 24 elders are rulers that represent all the people of God, right? They're the rulers that, that are surrounding God's throne in heaven. The four creatures represent all of creation surrounding God's throne. They're like the inner circle, right, in heaven. And they cry out, Amen. Right, Amen. I'm not sure if you know. We say Amen all the time in our prayers. It means, right, let it be so, or truly, uh, or maybe more colloquially, I agree, right? Let's do this. That's what the, the, the inner circle say, right? Let's do this. Hallelujah. Let's join in. Let's praise. You see, the cry from heaven is clear. The heavenly multitudes 
The heavenly inner circle, all of heaven, sees God, recognizes the Lord God as being worthy of their praise. And so the question is then, so what? Right? So heaven sees it as, worth, as God's being worthy. Well, so what? The so what is that all believers are then called to join in. Right? All of us here on earth, here in this room, are called to join in on heaven's praise. You see, for, for all of the, the grimness of life on this earth, uh, of all the brokenness that we experience in the world, of all of the, the forces and the enticements of the world that's trying to lure us away from, from Jesus, from all of the, the, the warring of the, of the serpent, Satan, the dragon, the beast, the prostitute, uh, when we are struggling and suffering to, 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 to live for Jesus and to trust Him, the heaven's voices cry out, Hallelujah, right? Hallelujah, and gives us reasons as believers to praise God, to praise God. So the praise of heaven helps us to see what it means to praise God, right? That's what we learn. Now, the question then is, what is praise? I think sometimes this thing of uh, praise kind of trips us up. Many of us think of praise as being like thanksgiving. Uh, and, you know, when we start praising God, we usually thank Him for stuff, which is fine. But when we think about praise, we do praising all the time, don't we? So uh, just in the past week, uh, I met a guy recently. Uh, I, met a, I met up with a guy. Um, it may or may not be someone in this room. Uh, some of you may recognize who I'm talking about. But you see, he just started dating right, recently. Uh, and he's in that honeymoon phase. And it, it seems like he can't stop talking about his new girlfriend. Right? He keeps <laughs> praising her. She's so lovely. Right? You know, when I said some really hard things to her and some really hard questions, she was just so understanding. Right? She was so lovely, he repeats himself again, so caring. Um, and then, you know, moments later, he tells a story to the, to the next person, and he never gets bored of telling how, how lovely this girl is, right, that's come into his life. Uh, and as he smiles on his face, there's like this light like bursting out from his chest like a care bear, right? That's what praise is, isn't it? We, 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 we talk up somebody that we, that we think highly of. And I'm sure he also talks up uh, this girl in front of her as well, right? Praise is when we tell other people how good someone is, but it's also when we tell the person directly. You know, so, you know, the, the Asian parents, they do the same thing, right? They, they tell everybody, right, how, how good their kids is. That's the Asian way. The Aussie way is to tell the kids, right? The Asians will never tell the kids directly for some reason. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the Aussies do. So that's great. But you see here, praise, right? It's a very normal, common thing that we do. But it involves a few things, doesn't it? The first thing about praise is that it begins with knowledge. Uh, it begins with understanding. There's reasons to praise. And so we've seen so far that there are reasons to praise is that God is, uh, God is a saviour, salvation, and, and God is glorious, and God is powerful. See, if you don't have knowledge about God, you can't praise Him. You don't have reasons right, to praise. But praise is more than just the mind. Right? Praise is a capturing of the heart. We are affected right, really deep right, within us when we praise. It's not just some kind of uh, intellectual assent, an understanding nod, yeah, God is sovereign, God is powerful, God is salvation. No, right? It, it's like a bursting out, like a light that wants to flow out, that wants to shine out. And so then the third thing is that praise is expressed outwardly. Right? People who want to praise, don't keep it in. Right? It comes out. The heavenly beings, they cry out with a very loud voice. Right? They're enthusiastic. And sometimes I think the problem with us when we read the Bible is that usually we do it like first thing in the morning when we're really tired or last thing at night when we're really tired. 
and the whole Bible just seems really dry and boring. Right? But you've got to read the emotion that's in the passage. These, these heavenly uh, uh, multitudes and the inner circle, they're fully into it, right? And they are praise. And they want people to join in on their praise. And so, in, in probably the most practical sense, the easiest way to praise God is to sing, isn't it? Because in our songs, we have truth expressed with emotion that hopefully is genuine, that comes out from our hearts. Right? When we sing, we praise God to God. Yes, right? we're singing to God, but we're also singing it to each other. And that's the reason why this church has been set up in this way. Even though the stage is there, can you notice actually there's a stage? It used to all face this way. But then you can't see each other. You just see the back of people's heads. But now we get to sing to each other as we talk about the goodness of God. We sing about the goodness of God and the characteristics of God and the, the power of God right, to each other as we sing it to God. Now the issue then is, why are we such a poor singing church? Right, I know we've got a pretty conservative background. And I know, I think Dan Dunn's probably the only guy that has his hands up once in a while. That's great. All right? But most of us look like we, we, we just, it looks like we're reading a, a physics textbook when we sing sometimes. You know? Come on and celebrate, celebrate. I mean, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I mean, I sit up there, right? I usually sit up there. That's my designated spot for some reason. So I get to see everybody. And I'm not trying to judge or anything, but I just notice things. And once in a while, I'm also feeling kind of deadbeat, right? I got a sore tongue. I don't want to sing. But let's sing up, right? Back in uh, my ministry training days in UNSW, there was this student. Right? He's a big guy, um, and uh, he had a big voice. And we were meeting in the lecture theater, and uh, you could hear everything from anywhere. And he would just sing, right, so loudly. But you know what? He was the most tone deaf, right? <laughs> out-of-tune singer you've ever heard. Uh, and if you stood next to him, in fact, if you stood anywhere in the building, you would hear this out-of-tune guy singing. And it'd be quite distracting, actually. But then, actually, also very heartwarming. Because you realize that this guy didn't care, right? He knew he was tone deaf, but he just wanted to praise. And praise he did. So let's sing up. I know, you know, we are reserved people, conservatives. Uh, but, you know, maybe we could sing up a little bit more if, in our hearts, we see that there's a reason to give God praise. But it's not just in our singing. It's just one way of, of praising. This praise is also seen just in our talking. Uh, just like uh, a proud parent or a new boyfriend, uh, we have a desire to tell people about someone, the one that we want to praise, right? God. We want to talk about God to people if God really means something to us, if God really is salvation and glory and power. Uh, we want to share the gospel because in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see salvation and glory and power. Now, initially, when we talk about God and talk about the gospel more, it may seem awkward and strange, but if we can't keep it in, then we'll keep trying and it'll keep getting easier. You'll keep doing it if you're convinced in mind and heart that you want to praise God and the gospel. Now, I'll turn back to the passage because we, we're not done yet with the praise, right, that comes from heaven. So have a look at verse 6. We continue on, right? Another cry of hallelujah uh, comes from the great multitude. And this time they're praising the Lord, our God, for what reason? For His great and eternal reign, right? Because of the reign of the Lord God, but also for the marriage of the Lamb. Now praising God's eternal reign, well, that's a given. Of course, the, the true God will be eternally ruling. 
But then it's quite interesting, right, that we're also pray, praising, or the heavenly multitudes are praising for the, the marriage of the Lamb. Right? Somehow, uh, the bride in this marriage has been included in this eternal reign of God. And that is something worth praising. Because we are, the bride uh, doesn't really deserve to be in God's kingdom. Now, as we look at this marriage a little bit more, let's notice there's a contrast between two women, right? Remember back in chapter 17 and 18, we've been looking at the great prostitute, uh, and she's the one who is beautiful on the outside. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet uh, linen, the colors of royalty. Uh, she is luxurious and alluring and enticing. But on the inside, she's rotten, isn't she? She's rotten to the core. She is full of abominations and impurities. Uh, and she's the one uh, who has her sins who are heaped up to the heavens, and she's the one who will face the certain uh, total judgment and destruction of God. And we're told that all who love her, all who follow her ways, will go down with her. But then here in chapter 19, we see another woman, right? Another woman, and she's the bride. And she's like the total opposite of the prostitute, isn't she? She is beautiful both on the outside and on the inside. She is clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. She is filled with righteousness and goodness and purity. And she is this way, outside and in, because of the Lamb and what the Lamb has done for her. She's not like this in her natural state. It's because of what the Lamb has done. Now, the Lamb, of course, brings us back to Revelation 5, right? Another bit of background. Revelation 5, probably the center vision of the whole book of Revelation, where the Lamb standing in the middle of the throne room of God, who once was slain, but is now alive again because he's standing. And reminds us that this is the Lamb of God who came uh, to, to die for the sins of the world, right? The Lord Jesus Christ, who, who shed his blood on the cross for the cleansing and the forgiveness of sins of those who trust in him. The Lamb who died but then was raised in power and given all authority in heaven and on earth. The one who will one day return again in final judgment. So the bride is our believers, isn't it? Who have put their trust in our Lord Jesus, who have been cleansed and forgiven of all of our sins and given a new life of righteousness. Now, it may seem strange at first, especially for the guys here, to think of ourselves as being brides of Christ or the bride of Christ. No male, I'm sure, wants to be a bride. But let's not be too earthy or too literal about this uh, because the picture of marriage in the Bible, of human marriage, actually points us to a greater spiritual reality. And that spiritual reality is one of intimacy and connection and relationship. And this is truly a beautiful picture of we as believers and where we are headed. We're headed for that final marriage supper where we are the cleansed people of the Lord Jesus who will be ushered in to share in the eternal reign of our great God. So hallelujah. Right? Hallelujah, right? If you want a reason, another reason to praise God while well, we are included in the marriage supper of the Lamb to share in the eternal reign, in the eternal kingdom of our great God. But of course, you have to be the bride to be able to receive this blessing and give praise. And this is exactly what the angel tells John to do, right? To write down the words of verse 9, right? Uh, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right? Blessed are those who are invited uh, and who obviously receive this invitation. So the question is, who is invited to this marriage supper of the Lamb? 
Well, everyone is. Well, everyone is invited. Right? We live in a time of God's grace. The reason why the vision and the voices of the final judgment is told to us is so we can prepare for it. Because now is the time to prepare for it. Now is the time of God's grace. Now is the time to receive and accept the invitation to come into the marriage supper of the Lamb, to be the bride, to be cleansed. Now perhaps as, we, as you come along today over the last few weeks or months, you've been li- you realize right, that you've been living your own way up to this point in life. And maybe you sought to be a really good person. Uh, and by the world standards, maybe you are a really good person. In fact, maybe you're outstanding. And maybe you're more than just nice, you're very nice. You signed up for the mud army yesterday, right? And you will in the coming days. You're a great son or daughter, parent, cousin, friend, right? You're a great colleague, boss. Maybe by the world standards, you're doing really well in many areas. But you've come to realize over time that you haven't really given any attention really to God in any really serious way. You know that really, deep down, you are someone who is seeking self-glory in this life, right? Maybe not in an extreme way, as if you are like the best person with the biggest head in the world. But maybe you know that what people think of you, your standing in this world, your achievements, really matter to you, right? That self-glory is what you're living for. Maybe you realize that you are actually very self-sufficient, right? The world tells you that you earn your keep, right? You put in the hard work and you receive the rewards. It's all on you. You're self-sufficient. And maybe you know you are self-indulgent. Now, that word sounds really extreme. You wouldn't put it that way. But when you realize about your life, you are living for your own pleasures, for your comforts, for, your, for the possessions, for the achievements, for the experiences. You are desiring and chasing after the good life of, dare I say it, self-indulgence. And then you hear of the last two weeks that actually this way of life is the way of evil, is the way of the great prostitute, the great Babylon. You don't have to worship the prostitute or the city. All you have to do is to be lured in and enticed into that way of life where God gets put further and further away into the periphery of your life or out completely, and you find yourself seeking self-glory, self-sufficiency, and self-indulgence. And you realize, maybe, yes, I have been following the great prostitute all this time, and I didn't realize it. And perhaps for the first time, or perhaps you're getting more and more convinced that this is sinful, that this is against God, and that this will lead to judgment. If that's you today, well, hear the invitation to come out of Babylon to not love her, but to put your trust in Jesus and love Him and to live for Him instead. Stop loving the prostitute. She will lead you to your destruction. Love Jesus instead. Now, for those of us who are already believers, well, the call is for us to make sure that when the wedding banquet does arrive, that we enter it. Do any of you remember the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 22 uh, 22 about the uh, wedding feast? Uh, The story in the parable is how uh, many uh, were invited into this wedding feast uh, and uh, it takes time to prepare, but on the wedding feast day itself, when the food has been prepared, the party is ready, uh, the servants were sent out, right, to tell those people who were invited to come, come to the wedding feast. And what did people do? They gave ridiculous excuses and reasons as to why they wouldn't come. They wouldn't come. That's a warning to us, isn't it? 
that we may be believers, but somehow the lure and the enticements of this world can lead us to not enter when the Lamb comes, when the, bri when the bridegroom arrives. Let us remember that the greatest blessing is to be with our Lord Jesus when He returns. Don't let anything prevent you from entering that wedding feast when He comes. All right, we're two-thirds way in through the sermon. Exactly, right? I counted the words. Uh, we need a break because this is a slightly longer one, uh, and I'm going to have a break as well. So if everyone just stand up for a moment, have a bit of a stretch for 30 seconds, uh, we're going to come back and uh, hear the, the more difficult part right, of this passage. How's everyone feeling here? Temperature's good? I'm feeling hot. All right. We'll keep chatting afterwards. There's some serious parts to work through. So um, just uh, ready yourselves, okay? So we've heard about the, uh, the reasons to praise. Hallelujah from the voices from heaven. As we read on in chapter 19, uh, perhaps we were expecting to hear more about the bridegroom. Right? So far, we've heard about the bride and about the marriage supper, and maybe we were thinking that we might hear about the bridegroom. Right? It makes sense. And in a sense, we do hear about the bridegroom, but it's a picture of Jesus, the bridegroom, that we maybe weren't expecting to hear as we move on into verse 11 onwards. And you see there's a shift from voices to a vision, right? to visions. Uh, we're given uh, a picture of Jesus, not as a groom, uh, but of Jesus as uh, in a much greater, much more glorious, perhaps much more frightening uh, perspective. Firstly, let's notice how he looks, right? Let's notice how he looks. Uh, he's riding on a white horse out of heaven, uh, not to come to sweep the bride off her feet, like in some you know, romantic comedy or something, right? You know, the bridegroom on the white horse. Here he rides in on a white horse as a warrior king, right, to bring judgment by making war, right? He comes in on the horse, not in some romantic scene, but in a scene of victory, right? In war. Because white is the color of victory, uh, and the victory is pretty much guaranteed even though the battle hasn't yet been fought. And he's described in ways that are familiar to us if we have begun reading from Revelation chapter 1. Uh, he has, in verse 12, eyes like a flame of fire. So they're piercing, they're all seeing. He's got one head with many diadems, which are crowns, which symbolizes his rule, his complete and all-powerful rule. We see in verse 13 that his robes are dipped in blood. He hasn't yet gotten to battle, so it's probably not the blood of his enemies, but it's probably the blood of the lamb, right? The, the, the blood that he shed on the cross that allows his, the believers in verse 14 to be washed clean, right? To be able to have this uh, clothing of fine linen, white and pure. Uh, they themselves, on their white horses, Right, a uh, picture of purity and victory as they join with Jesus on his white horse. And then in verse 15, we see that from his mouth, you, you picture it, uh, comes a sharp sword um, to strike down the nations. And in his arm, he wields a rod of iron, uh, which is a symbol of rule and control. And finally, we get this picture of him uh, treading down grapes in a wine press, right, which is a picture of him um, pouring out the wrath of God 
are in judgment. It's quite a frightening scene, that one. You see, the vision of Jesus shows us clearly, doesn't it? That he's the warrior king that comes in to bring judgment on all who oppose him. Uh, and all who belong to him, the bride, uh, they follow him, washed by his blood, as part of his army, right? Who are victorious. Now, it's a, it's a scene that's both glorious and great, but also a bit frightening. But together, I think they give us yet another reason, isn't it? To praise God, right? to, to praise Jesus, and to believe in him, and to accept the invitation uh, to be the bride. Uh, he is the one on the white horse who is all-conquering. Uh, will you want to belong to his army, or will you want to be on the other side? Do you want to be with him, or do you want to be against him? That's what the vision is kind of show us. Uh, secondly, let's look at the names of Jesus in this passage. Now, names in the Bible are really important. For us, names are just some label. It doesn't have to mean much. So people name their kids Jacob. Is there any Jacob here? Jacob means deceiver. So if you name your kid Jacob, you, you know, if you're just doing it as a nice name, that's cool. But if you want to give them a nature of deceiver, I guess you can do it. But in the Bible, right, names represent nature, Okay. And so the names of Jesus here mean a lot. Verse 11, Jesus is the faithful, his name is faithful and true. Faithful and true. Right? He is totally dependable. Right? He will keep all of his promises. He will save. Right? He will judge. He will bring justice. He will return. And we need to hear that, don't we? Because as we face all the grim realities of life now, we need to know that we can absolutely trust the one who is faithful and true. Then in verse 12, we're told that he has a secret name right, that no one knows. Right? He is an inscrutable mystery. Right? He knows all things. He sees all things. But we can only know what he reveals. Uh, we will never be able to fully box him in and, and to limit him. We will never fully understand Jesus. And that is a reason to praise. Because what kind of God, what kind of king would Jesus be if we can figure him out totally? The fact that he has a name that we will never know shows us how high he is, how much higher he is compared to us, how much higher his ways are compared to ours. He is the word of God, right? This is how he will judge and rule. You know, that the sword, that picture of the sword coming out from his mouth is the word of God, right? Whatever he says happens, just like he was there in creation. It's the word of God, remember? And God said, let there be... And it was. Speaks, it happens. So in judgment, judgment word, judgment happens. Automatically. This is a picture of absolute power, isn't it? The word of God, absolute power, absolute authority. And then in verse 16, we have our final name <coughs> in this passage. Uh, King of kings and Lord of lords. Right, we know this one, don't we? King of kings and Lord of lords. Right? He's the, the eternal sovereign one the one with the ultimate rule, isn't it? Eternal sovereignty, now and forever. Now, you put all these names together, what does it show? Right, the four things, right? Um, total dependability, inscrutable mystery, absolute authority, and eternal sovereignty. Right, these names, when you reflect on them, uh, if we needed more reasons to accept the invitation to be the bride of the Lamb, then here we have it. Right, in the names of Jesus. Why wouldn't you want to be on his side, right, to be connected and in relationship with this one? And as we'll see in the vision that is to come, the last five verses 
Why would you ever want to be on the other side, on the other arm? Because as we move into the last five verses, we get to the really scary verses of this chapter, we see that we, uh, we see Jesus in his all, uh, as all-conquering king in the previous passage. Now we see him doing the conquering in 17 to 21. And it begins here in verse 17, and it goes all the way to the end of the next chapter, chapter 20, right, which Steve will speak about next week. And it's a, together, it's a vision of the final judgment, isn't it? Now, what we see in these five verses is actually quite shocking. If you were to let the words and the imagery sink in, it's really quite grotesque, uh, and it is quite frightening. Uh, before, we had the marriage supper of the lamb, right, for the bride, and now we have another supper, don't we? Right, the great supper of God, and clearly they're different suppers. And this supper, the great supper of God in verse 11, uh, sorry, in verse 17, is not a supper that you want to be a part of. Because in this supper is invited birds who are carnivorous, flesh-eating birds who will eat the flesh of kings and captains, of mighty men, of horses and horsemen, of all flesh, free and slave, small and great. In other words, these birds will feast on the armies that have allied themselves with the beast, with the beast. Because you see, the beast is pictured as, as gathering his army, right, to make war against the one that's sitting on the white horse and against all the believers that follow him. Right, he's been gathering his army. We've seen this in the vision of chapter 12 and 13, right, the dragon and the two beasts. And we see it here, right, in a different way. Right? Here in the final judgment, the beast has been gathering up all of his forces, the kings of the world, all the king's forces, from the greatest to the least, from the slaves to the free, everyone aligned with the beasts. And we, you can picture it, right? This was a movie directed by uh, Peter Cameron or whoever. You will see this scene, right? It's about, hour, it's about a four-hour movie, maybe. So at the three-hour, 15-minute mark, you're expecting, right? As you see the scene of the, the great army of the beast and the white horse with all the other white, people, uh, white horse Christian people up there, and you're expecting a great battle. But then what happens? Nothing happens, right? There's no battle because this is Mission Impossible for the beast and his army. He's going up against the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He's going up against the one whose words will never, ever fail. It's impossible, and it is impossible, because no sooner has the beast gathered his vast army that it's over. Where's the battle? There is no contest. If this was a, a movie that you paid $25 to go and watch, right, Andrew Pilly, you'd ask for your money back, right? Where's the action, Right? There's no action. You see, verse 19 rolls on into verse 20 without a pause, without a hitch, without a slightest little wrinkle. Just like that, the beast is captured along with the false prophet and tied up and thrown into the lake of fire, extinguished, vanquished, destroyed, gone. The dragon will be next, next week, chapter 20, come back. Right, the beast and false prophet gone now. The dragon about to follow. And what about the armies that have aligned themselves with the beast? Well, they will be slain by the sword. And then you can picture it, right? They're all lying there, and then the birds will sweep, sweep in on the great feast of God to be eaten up. To be eaten up. From the greatest of them, the kings, the captains, all the way to the least of the men. All will be eaten up. That's a gross, 
grotesque and frightening scene, and it's supposed to be this way. Because you see, the vision of Revelation shows us that judgment is not something to play with. Right? Judgment isn't mild and, and palatable. It isn't you know, moderately bad. Judgment is the absolute worst. It's meant to be scary and frightening. It's meant to shock us into not wanting to be, uh, have any part to do with the beast, to, to be aligned to, to the great prostitute in any way, shape, or form. For us to see that opposing God and going against the Son, going against the King and the Savior and the Ruler, going against the Judge, living lives our own way, for our own glory, with self-sufficiency and for our own indulgence, it's, it's not the way to go. The way to go is to worship Jesus, to trust Him, love Him and live for Him. This horrific vision is meant to raise the stakes for us as to why we must absolutely uh, come out of Babylon and cling on to Jesus, to, to, to push away from the prostitute and become the bride, to enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb and to avoid this great feast of God of destruction. And so as we finish uh, this morning or this afternoon, can I urge you, right, the invitation is open. Let us make sure that we accept it and come in. This is the supper that we want to be a part of. The other one, you don't want to have anything to do with don't love the prostitute. Come out of her. Become the bride of Christ. Worship Him. Trust Him. Live, him, live for Him. And we will do this knowing that the life of the believer isn't easy. We still live in a broken world, and following Jesus, following Him faithfully, uh, with conviction, means that we will suffer for it. There will be many hardships and difficulties. There will be many battles to fight. But even now, in the midst of all of that, no matter how crappy this last week has been in terms of the world and in terms of floods and in terms of other things that, 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 that bring us down, uh, we have reasons, don't we, to say hallelujah, praise the Lord. It can be our daily cry no matter what is going on in our lives. We have to find reasons to say hallelujah, praise the Lord. Uh, the kids in kids' church are taught pastor prayer, right? Pastor stands for praise and sorry, thank you, and ask. Right? That's a great, great little mnemonic, right, to be able to think about praising God. Why don't you start every day finding reasons from His Word to praise Him, to praise Him. Now, we're going to sing in a moment, uh, which basically are words of chapter 19. Uh, can I ask that we sing up as best as we can? I know it might feel a bit weird. We're very reserved. Uh, if we are singing out of tune. I know what? Who cares, right? Well, God wants to hear our praises, and we want to hear each other praising God. So let me pray in praise, and then let us sing in praise in response to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for the vision that we'll be able to receive today, the voices that cry out from heaven uh, singing hallelujah, praise Yahweh, praise the Lord God uh, for your salvation, for your glory, for your power seen in the judgment of all that is evil and wicked in this world. And we thank you for the praise that rings from heaven, uh, that your rule is eternal and that the bride has been cleansed to be a part of your eternal kingdom. We thank you that heaven calls for us today in this room, in this world, to join in on the praise of heaven, to see that you are worthy, O God, of our praise. So help us to do that 
uh, in the way that we sing right now, uh, but more so in the way that we go about lives every day as we seek to find people to praise you uh, to, uh, to speak of your, your power, your love, your grace, your mercy, your character, uh, to praise uh, the Lord Jesus, his death and resurrection. Help us, Father, to, to praise you day to day in the way that we speak of you. Even as we also reflect on the vision of Jesus as all-conquering warrior king, help us to see that we want to be aligned to him. We want to be uh, the army cleansed by his blood on a white horse in victory. That we want no part at all uh, in the beast and his army, in being aligned to the ways of this world and rejection of you. So today, please help us to receive and accept the invitation to the bride of Christ to put our trust in him and to love him. For this we pray in his most precious and powerful name. Amen.